Uh, you have jumped into the middle of about a month-long series that we're doing on the family. And the big idea is this, that before you love your family, God loves your family. And we're just looking from the scriptures at what that means. By way of review, just a couple of quick thoughts. Um, much is at stake for our marriages. Much is at stake for our parenting. And if you're on a slack line a few feet above, you can give kind of wavering attention to your family. But if you're crossing the Grand Canyon holding nothing but a pole... Uh, you, you devote unwavering attention and energy to the task. I wonder how many people in our valley put the amount of attention like that would be equating to a slack line and wonder why there aren't different results in their family. What, what if we put the amount of energy and attention and focus and persistence to our schoolwork? What kind of grades should we expect? What about in our businesses? What kind of increased profits should we expect? One of the struggles of modern American life, that's the only life I know, is that oftentimes we put in some great energies outside the home and wonder why things are crumbling in the home and wonder why we don't get different results. Secondly, we just talked about the idea that if we were to parent and be a child and be a brother or sister, be an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, in light of the truth that we just sang, it would revolutionize our parenting. It would revolutionize what it means to be a spouse. That God, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who he acts out of. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights with whom there's no shifting shadow. Family is a gift from God. And what if we woke up every morning with this realization and we believed it to the core of our being and we knew it was our identity that I am the beloved. I am the beloved son. I'm the beloved daughter of this good, good father. Here's what I proposed last week, and I still think many of you don't believe me, but here it is. Of all the principles I could give you, of all the parenting books you could read, of all the scriptures you could memorize, to parent from a place of understanding and health regarding your identity as the beloved, out of the identity that God is a good, good father, I think that trumps so many other things. It, it trumps all the principles and techniques of parenting and being a spouse and communication and all that might fall under that could do. So we started there with some really big ideas. Turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. It's near the end of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, use the one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep the one in front of you. I won't even come and check up to see if you're reading the Bible, although I think that's a great idea. You can have it as our gift. Second Peter chapter 3. Specifically this morning, we're going to look at the parent-child relationship. And if you're a child in here, um, hint, that's all of you. Every one of you is a child, right? You might be a grown-up child, but you still have parents, whether you know them or not, whether you're in relationship with them or not. And many of you in this room are parents, and some are grandparents as well. We have a lot of kids, but that does not qualify us as experts in the area of parenting. It really disqualifies us as being tired. We actually kept making mistakes with our children, so we'd have another one. And then after the second one, we thought, well, we messed that one up. We'll have another one. So we're on child number seven right now. And seven may be the perfect number, but we've come to discover seven is not the perfect child. He, we're having flaws with him, too, in our parenting. So just a heads up for those of you who are going to try that same track. Uh, I'm in that rare club of being a Christian pastor who has seven kids from four different women. Now, some of you don't know our story. 
And so that's going to confuse you a little bit. Let me say it this way. I said from four different women, not with four different women. Okay, that's a, that's a giant, huge difference. Hint, in case those of you who are going to be distracted by that the rest of the morning, we've adopted. That's the, that's the answer to the puzzle, okay? It actually makes for really interesting conversations. When people bump into you, you know, the, the common question is, oh, what do you do, right? I have a lot of fun answering that in many different ways, but one of the ways that, I, that I've taken to is this, oh, I, I pastor a church and I father children, to which people reply, oh, I've never met a cult leader before, right? I mean, that's what they think that I am if I, if I say that. Obviously, this topic of parenting is really close to my heart, and it's close to my heart because I care deeply about it, but it's also close to my heart because it's where I live every single day. I have read many, many parenting books, um, again, just out of a desire to grow as a parent. Uh, many of you are just learning that different seasons of parenting brings you to your knees in a fresh way. It, it, it causes you to, to require God's grace to be desperate for God in, in a fresh way, and that certainly has been true of us. So much parenting advice, Christian and non-Christian, says this. It says, parent with the end in mind. Have you heard of that concept before? Parent with the end of, in, in mind. And while I think that's all fine and dandy, even Christian books get this wrong. And here's how I think they, they get it wrong. Do I want to parent in such a way that my 30-year-old will one day come back and say, Mom, Dad, thank you for loving me enough to draw hard lines. Thank you enough uh, for, for loving me um, so that I'll thank you in my 30s and not necessarily thank you when I'm 13. Uh, do I want that? Yes, I do. And I think about that often. There are many decisions that you make as a parent that you say, wow, being called the worst parent right now isn't such a bad thing because I'm contradicting a very thing that, that God is going to hold me accountable to, to, to contradict them in. I want them to thank me when I'm 30 and not 13. But here's where I think people get it wrong. Parent with the end in mind often stops there. Like, let's parent to see where they're going to end up here on this earth. And I think God's call to us, Christians, is much grander than that. It's to parent with the end in mind, but it's to parent with the very end in mind, as in the end of the age in mind. And I want to show you from the scriptures this morning, and from a few words that I'm going to add in, that I think that makes a massive difference in how we parent. Second Peter uh, chapter 3 says this, and before we read this, um, before looking at God's plan for the family, here's what I want to do. I want to take God's plan for the family, and I'll expand it out and say, what's God's plan? What's God's plan, and how does the family fit into that? I think a lot of people do a la carte Christian parenting, which means I'm going to grab some of the principles, I'm going to do some of the things. But without understanding God's plan, and only looking at God's plan for the family, because that's what I care about, we actually miss what God's talking about. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11 says this. Since everything, if you underline in your Bible, you might want to underline the word everything. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are to be looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, at peace with him. What is God's big goal? It's in part for us to be mindful of what's temporary and what is eternal. 
Look at this passage. Two times we're told to be looking forward and working to the end, to the very end. Now overlay this idea onto the family for a moment. What does it look like to make every effort and be looking forward to and speed the coming of God in in the end over the family life? I would say that it's really, really short-sighted to pour all of my energy as a parent into some of the following, and yet we see this as really common. Manners, college, career, tech toys, morals, health, fitness, great money management, and on, on, and on the list goes. Those are, those are good things to train up your child and teach them, to, to, but to pour all your energy into that which is not going to last is foolishness. It's all going to burn. Do you ever wonder what it means to speed its coming? How do we speed its coming? How do we speed the day of the Lord coming? We looked at this in another sermon, but I believe that you speed Jesus' return as you cooperate with his big plan. If God has a big plan over here, and as we cooperate with that, we're actually working toward that coming to fruition, that's what it means to speed its coming. So what is this big plan of God? How do we cooperate with it? The big plan of God is salvation, is it not? It's making disciples. It's bringing restored relationship, peace to a relationship that was severed by sin. That's God's big plan. If you read the big story of the scriptures from start to front, that's, that's one of the giant themes that emerges. So, to parent with the end in mind as in the very end in mind, is to have it look differently. By the way, I want you to look at this image for a moment. Um, Kids in the room, this is you looking up to mom and dad, okay? Now, some of you are older, and some of you look down on your parents, like my 16-year-old constantly is looking down on me. And uh, even though you're taller than your parents, even though you might be older now, there's still this kid inside of you that's looking up to mom and dad and says, help, I need help. You don't admit it on a lot of days once you hit your teens, but you still need help. Parents in the room, this is you right here. This is you looking up to your heavenly father saying what? Help me. I need help. Parents, you're still being parented by your good father. So this picture is kind of for everyone in the room who's in that parent-child relationship, which if you think about it, is everyone. All right, flipping your Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 6. If the call of Christians is to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, Jesus said to them, then, uh, then the idea of parenting as discipleship making ought to make perfect sense and ought to be talked about a lot. We say something around here often that if you want to look at our children's ministry, we would point to you parents. We say this openly in elders meetings all the time. Our children's ministry is you guys. It's the parents. The parents are the one called to raise up their children. The church is going to come alongside and assist, but we are, we are not that primary spiritual input. The, the parents are. If you want to look at our youth ministry, we'd say the same thing. Our youth ministry is our parents as they minister to the youth. 
Now, we have someone who's dedicated to that and a whole team of people who love on, on youth and provide some, some partnership things, which we'll look at actually a little bit more closely next week. But God's first and best greenhouse for spiritual growth is where? It's the home, right? Always. By design, God's first and best greenhouse for spiritual growth is the family. So where does discipleship making better happen better than in the home? Nowhere. It doesn't happen any better place than in the home. Making disciples is about leadership and followership. Can someone look up Matthew 28 and read the uh, Great Commission for us? It's the last few verses. Uh, it's chapter, it's verses 18 and 20. Someone raise your hand so I know you're getting on that and can read that in just a moment. Dwayne, you look, you look hungry to do it. Thank you. Um, so, so the idea of, of making disciples is all about, uh, about leadership and followership. There's, there's, uh, there's authority given, there's authority received, there's authority uh, placed on other people. Dwayne, are, are you ready with that? Okay, listen for it as you hear the, the Great Commission. So all authority has been given to me. That's the Father giving the authority to the Son. Do you see head-subordinate relationship going on, right? And then, he, and then he says, I'm commanding you. That's leadership and followership. That's head-subordinate. The one with the authority is commanding disciples to go and do some things. And that is make disciples. What are disciples but followers? What are you to do with followers? You're to teach them. That implies there's a teacher and a student. Let me just say this because this is in question in our culture. That head subordinate relationships are designed into the created order. We see this all through culture, but especially in morals, and it's permeating into the families, there's a sense of, Who are you to tell me what to do? I don't have to listen to anyone. Have you heard this before? And it's not just from teenagers, right? As teens, we're supposed to say that stuff. Like, that's part of our lines as our teenagers. I don't have to listen to anyone, right? But that's actually permeated into all kinds of things. And I want you to to see that head-subordinate relationships are good. They're designed by God, and they're good. And they're given in the family, in marriage, and in parenting. You have core role that you are equipped to do and be and to walk in. And you're given authority to carry out. Husbands and wives and children, celebrate this. Don't feel ashamed of it. Don't question it. Read what God has to say and, and trust it. Live it out. There will be many who come and go in your child's life, or if you're a kid, in your life. But there is such a unique relationship between your parents and you. And it's designed by God. All right, Ephesians chapter 6 says this, starting in verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me read kind of a parallel passage from Colossians. You could jot this down. Colossians 3.20 says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, there are some other key passages, but I wanted to highlight those two that we'll kind of center on this morning. If you're taking notes, here's the first fill-in. Children, we're talking to you first. Follow your leaders. 
God has given you parents to follow. And Colossians lays it out pretty plainly. Obey your parents in everything. You want to please God with your life? Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth and say, I want to please God. It's just, I'm not going to obey my parents. Because the Bible takes those and lines them up. It says your primary role as a child in the home is to be obeying your parents in everything. I've jotted down a few uh, passages in your notes that you can look up later that have to do with this idea of a followership and headship. And it, it ties really into leaders in the church and followers in the church as to how leaders are called and commanded to lead. And if you think about parenting as discipleship, it opens up these passages for you to think in these terms. If you notice in Ephesians 6 here, uh, or Ephesians 4, um, no, Ephesians 6, sorry, uh, that the that Paul is addressing children directly. Paul is saying children. Now, these letters would have been written and then read and dispersed around the churches in the early days. Here's what that says. Children, you're expected to be in public family worship. One of the things that we do here, programming note, as to why we... Uh, we, we don't take our youth and separate them out into, into other things and do, and do youth-centric things or children-centric things. We want our kids in with us. First Sunday of the month, we bring them in and keep them in the whole time, uh, even the young kiddos. And periodically throughout the year, we have no nursery, no anything, just to have everyone here. We believe that the scriptures teach that, that God's word and sitting under God's teaching is, is for everyone. And we recognize sometimes that old guys like me get a little bit boring and you get a little bit squirmy, and that's okay. We're good with that. We're good with some of the noise and buzz that goes on when kids are in worship. But what we see Paul doing is addressing kids directly. He doesn't say, hey, parents, when youth group's out, tell your kids. No, he he addresses them directly. Children, obey your parents. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and he's the ultimate authority, and he appoints leaders. In the church, it's elders, shepherds. In the home, it's parents. Your role, kids, are to honor and to obey. Do you know that your parents' kids one day will give an account before God as to how they parented? Some of you ought to take great comfort in that. It's not on you to exact justice. It's not on you to make a judgment of your parents' parenting, although you probably do. It's up to God who appointed them the leaders. It's actually to your own advantage, kids, and some of you are smart enough to be figuring this out. It is to your own advantage to make parenting a joy for your kids. It says the same thing to churchgoers. Hey, churchgoers, it's to your own advantage if you make it a joy for your leaders in the household of God, the church, to, to lead you. It's the same in the home. If, you, uh, if you're a kid in here, which is all of you, You'll, you'll get this, that you obey for a season of time, but you honor for a lifetime, right? Many of you have long since moved out of the home, and the relationship changes. You no longer obey your parents in everything, because God has established that, that you leave your father and mother, and you go establish your own home. That's a good thing. But you honor for a lifetime. And again, I, I know many of your stories in here. For some of you, you're doing a stellar job at that. You're, you're paying attention to and keeping in mind, what does it look like to honor my mom and dad? And for some of you, it's an act of God every time you pick up the phone or write an email to just try and reach out because there's so much pain there and there's so much difficulty there. Um, but we are called to honor our parents for a lifetime, obey them for a season. Kids, if you're finding it hard to respect your parents today, here's a prayer for you, okay? 
I find it hard to, to respect my parents, God, but I sincerely want to honor you and, and obey you in everything, and you've told me to obey my parents. Here's your prayer. Lord, help me forgive those who sin differently than I. Lord, help me forgive those who sin differently than I. Here's the deal. Your parents are people in process too. They're sinners saved by grace, just like the rest of us. They're people with hang-ups and sin problems, catch this, just like you. So to develop a heart of grace toward your folks is this. God, my parents sin in many different ways than I do. Help me to see that and respect that. Uh, it will not come naturally uh, to obey your parents. You have this bent on finding your own way. Uh, there was a seminary cafeteria uh, back in the Midwest, and there was a cafeteria sign uh, to which the faculty had written this. It was by a bowl of apples. Take only one, God is watching. Uh, at the end of the line, under the plate of cookies, a student wrote a second handwritten sign. Take all you want, God is watching the apples. Right? <laughs> this is what's in your heart, people. I mean, we are, we are entrepreneurs at sin, right? We, we find the loopholes. Parents, but you didn't technically say, right? Have you used that one before? It's because our hearts are, are bent on finding new ways to, to create evil. Um, catch this, that kids obey your parents is not supernatural. That's not something abnormal. We look at that around the world, and Christian or non-Christian, uh, that is not a supernatural idea. Here's a supernatural idea. Catch this. Parents, mom, dad, respect your kids. So kids obey parents is not supernatural. Guess what? The ones with the most power are the big ones with the money and the home, right? They get to call the shots. And there's turmoil sometimes. If there's been a lot of unhealth, there's turmoil when that's, when that balance of power starts to happen. I don't need mom and dad anymore. Here's what's beautiful about the scriptures as you study the parent-child relationship is that God not only said kids obey your parents, not supernatural. He said parents, mom and dad, you respect your kids. You watch how you parent that child. You've been given authority and power. You watch how you use that. You're going to be given an account for that. God is looking out for you, kids. When mom and dad aren't doing their part, and I said when, not if, because we're sinners, right? When mom and dad are not doing their part, let me give you, let me give you some instruction. Take it up with God. Take it up with God. I shared with you guys um, a little while ago, but it bears repeating that I got told on during bedtime prayers a couple months ago now by Eli, our, our, our youngest child. And it was, the, it was his version of, let me, let me talk to your supervisor, basically. So we're, we're praying at bedtime, and, and he was thanking God all for the great things that went on, and, and hike, and this and that. And then he said, but, and I was like, huh? And he goes, there really wasn't enough water on the trip. I was thirsty. Uh, the, the hike was too long. I was tired halfway through, and we had to keep going. And he's going on and on, and I'm realizing I'm getting told on to God by my four-year-old. Now, it stirred up in me some defenses, like, objection, your honor, there was plenty of water, I had a whole camel back, he didn't ask, I didn't know. And I thought how foolish that is, right? God knows I've got water in my camel back, and that I wasn't trying to deprive my child of water. And, and again, confession, the pastor peaked, I peaked during prayer, okay? I open up my eyes, and I see this precious little four-year-old doing exactly what I want him to be doing. I want him to be pouring out his day, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to his heavenly father. 
And when he has bad leadership him, you know what I want him doing? I want him running to the supervisor. God, you appointed this guy my dad. Get him to straighten up. Dad, you, you know, uh, he, can, he can call it his complaints to me, but he's going to, to, to the top. He's really obeying what the disciple Peter gave to, to us. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Kids, do that same thing. Parents, let me talk to you for a moment. The command for parents is lead your followers. You've been given followers. Lead them and lead them well. I've put some scriptures in, in place here that you can look up later for, for further study. Parents, train up, don't fire up. Understanding parenting as discipleship really opens you up to a whole world of instruction from God's word. If I were to just quiz you this morning and say, hey, what are some key passages that talk about parents and how we're to raise up our kids? You would have brought up Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, no doubt. You would have brought up a handful of others. We may have got to about 10 key passages that we would call them out and say, this is where the Bible speaks of parenting. And to limit ourselves to that would be a giant mistake. To understand that God wants the home to be a mini-representation of the church and that we are to pastor our kids opens parents up to a world of instruction from God's Word. The Bible coaches us how to live, does it not? Hey, live in a life worthy of the manner. We were just told, hey, in light of then times, how should you conduct yourselves? You ought to walk in a holy manner. What is holiness all about? The Bible speaks all about that. So guess what? As you wonder how to train up your kids, train them up to be holy. Train them up to be prepared for the end, to meet Jesus' return with confidence and joy. The Bible commands us to do some things. All those commands from Scripture, there's your parenting playbook. The, the Bible forbids us, says, don't ever do this. Don't ever step off this path and go in this direction. It's to your own harm. Guess what? Those prohibitions, that's what we instill in our, in our homes. That's what we walk in and model, and then that's what we teach to our kids. Do you see how there are thousands and thousands of passages that deal with parenting? A ton of them. There's provision for all the times that we screw up. How do we repent? How do we understand forgiveness? How do we walk in grace? How do we receive God's mercies that are new every morning? That's a family issue. So parents, pastor your kids. Think about pastors in the Bible. There are clear qualifications for who should be shepherding the church of God. You ought to be looking at that list and, and following it. You ought to be looking to be qualified as a pastor in the church. Those are great lists to, to look at and know. Do you know the pastors are called to know and care for their flock? Do you know and care for your kids? I'm not just talking about the names. I get my own names confused in my kids sometimes, right? Do you know them? Do you really listen to them? Pastors, you better know and care for the flock that God's given to you. Pastors go astray when they're ever looking for new people and people who aren't in their church to the neglect of their church. The flock that God has called them to shepherd. Do you know that pastors are called to do it, to, to lead willingly and eagerly and not selfishly, lazily, or out of mere duty? Parents, we're called to do the same, to be willing and eager with our parenting. Do you know that we're to do it as pastors, not domineering, but by example? It's a clear teaching of God's word. Do you know that we're to always lead and shepherd with an eye on the chief shepherd? 
And the reason we keep our eye on the chief shepherd as under shepherds is for two is twofold. One is as by way of example. How, God, how do you parent us? How do you shepherd us? What's important to you? What do you call out in scriptures? What do you leave wide open? Help me to keep focused on those big things. But not only by way of example, but by way of the, the one who will give an account to. As an under-shepherd, I ought to always be keeping in mind, I'm going to give an account to the chief shepherd one day. Dave, Ben, Keld, uh, Chuck, Gria. Hey, you, you guys were given a church to flock and care for. How did you do with that? Parents, you were entrusted with some precious children. Priceless gifts. How did you do with that? Um, when Ephesians says not to provoke to anger or discouragement, again, if you want to jot this down, kind of the idea of train up, don't fire up. We know how to push each other's buttons in families, don't we? I mean, we know intimately how to, to go there and push buttons. Let me give you some, uh, some ideas maybe around provoke to anger that in uh, about 15 to 18 years of youth ministry taught me. I had middle school through college in all those different times. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of families come through over the years. And these are some of the things that I saw. Provoke to anger is to exasperate, to make unreasonable demands. And you can do that in one of two ways. The first way is to, to do it in a real aggressive kind of a way. The aggressive kind of a way is, is the lord of the manor type parenting, right? Mom or dad can have this trait where they're just kind of lord of the manor. Uh, there's one-way communication. You might look at them and see bully. Maybe that's the home you were raised in. Maybe that's what you struggle with as a parent. But it's, I've got a verse, right? Just do it. It's just putting your foot down all the time on everything. That's the really aggressive, provoking to anger. Mixed into this is verbal and physical abuse. Let me say this really openly. That's never acceptable. That's sinful. If that's you, you need to repent today. Come and talk to me in my office afterwards. It's sin. Repent of that. It's never acceptable. There's hope and help and healing, but it starts with you. Take ownership of that. So that's the aggressive way of provoking your child to anger, provoking your child to discouragement, which Ephesians and Colossians talk about. But I've seen a second path, and that's the passive way. There's kind of a passive way of provoking your kids to discouragement, a passive way of, of provoking your, your kids to anger. In fact, I've seen rage in teenagers uh, that, that stem from silent or missing dads probably far more often than from raging bully dads. That if you're a silent, passive dad or a missing dad, it causes rage by the time your kids hit the teenage years. Here's some 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 maybe subtle provokings. Maybe you're not in the uber-aggressive camp, and what I just said about being silent or missing, that doesn't hit the mark either. But maybe there's a middle ground here where these are some more subtle uh, discouragement and rage-producing things that maybe even are meant for good. But maybe you need to, to grow in this. One is overprotection. The overprotection parent is the smothering parent. There's no trust. And the idea of child's will, um, it can be guided, but it can't be controlled. And there's a, there's a little fallacy that, that goes on with parents. You see a child being compliant and you think you're controlling the will you're not. There's coming a time when kind of the steam blows the lid off and I've walked through families who the, the teen wanted to legally emancipate themselves from their family at 18. I've seen others who've completely disowned their family and their parents say this is completely out of the blue. It wasn't out of the blue. 
It was years and years and years and years treating this now 18-year-old like they're four, making every decision for them, uh, uh, choosing can't do, bullying them into submission, and at some point, that just blew. So that's overprotection. Another one is favoritism. We see this in the Bible. Uh, With Isaac, Esau over Jacob, right? Rebecca, uh, Jacob over Esau. How did that fare in the family? Terrible, right? We we find favoritism in the family a horrible a horrible mix in terms of, of raising a godly loving family. So that's something that, that that might be there. How about overachievement? We live in the Silicon Valley where this is a great sin. Overachievement where it's never good enough. Some parents are actually living out their fantasies through their kids. They didn't get into this college. They got into this college. So by golly, their kid's going to get into this college. They were a top-notch sports star, and so Junior needs to be a top-notch sports star. Particularly doing youth ministry in Cupertino. Um, guess where kids were Friday night, Saturday night. Uh, in some counties, in some cities, it would be, man, we've got to work against people going out and partying. This, it was, gosh, all the kids are crammed into tutoring centers uh, getting their A pluses, A plus, plus, pluses, right? And there was, a, there was this bizarre thing of, of encouraging parents. Parents, let your kids be kids. And A++ is probably good enough, right? You're probably stressing your kids out. Here's another one, discouragement. The kid who's never complimented, only corrected, always focusing on how to improve. I have sort of a coach mentality, and, and I'm, an encur- I'm a weird mix of this, because I, I am an, an, an encourager, but I can always come and find ways to improve and, and kind of challenge people on to more. And that gets really burdensome sometimes if I don't balance that with enough encouragement. So that's a subtle way of provoking to discouragement. Finally, and I just have to say this in this valley too, that, that kids are often seen as, a, as an intrusion in life, right? We see this with the, the abortion culture that we have. I'm so thrilled. Some things are stirring up in conversation once again with this. Kids are not an intrusion. Kids are a gift. Kids are a miracle. If God has blessed you with being pregnant, praise God for that. Are you scared? Are you nervous? Are you wondering how are you going to afford it? Great. Come around your church family. Let them come around you. Kids are a blessing from God. You are richly rewarded if you have children. They're never an an intrusion. Now, much to our kids' chagrin, we read this idea that kids are a gift from God, and we decided to instill Kids' Day one, one year. I think it was back in 07. I think we did it for a couple of years. We had Father's Day and Mother's Day. We thought, let's have a whole day where kids just get to call the shots. And so they got breakfast in bed. I think the parents did all the chores. Like, they loved it, right? For some reason, we forgot to do that the, the next year. So um, now that I've said that, I'm sure my kids will remind me of that. So that's what we ought to do. How, how do you train up? Let me speak a couple of minutes to training up. How, how do we train it up? In Ephesians 6.4, it says, in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. We're to train up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? That means this. That means that you can't get this in a sermon where I can give you a few quick things and you could jot them down and you're done. It means that you need to know what the fear and discipline of the Lord is. It means that you need to be walking and growing in the fear and discipline of the Lord and, and the instruction of the Lord, right? And as you do that, what do you do? You pass it on to your children. Proverbs 22.6, just jot that verse down. Proverbs 22.6 is probably in the top ten of verses that would come to our mind as we thought about parenting. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, what? He will not depart from it, right? So train up a child in the way he should go. What is that talking about? 
Let me show you the easiest person by far in my household to train. It's this guy right here. And the reason that he is so easy to train is that he is singularly motivated by one thing. Okay? The way that he sat still and got this great shot, I can do it. I can repeat this time and time and time again. It's quite simple. I take a tennis ball. I hold it here. I hold the camera here, right? If I want him looking to the side, I have someone over here holding the ball. I mean, I can, do, I can have him do whatever I want with that silly little ball, right? Um, my dog, Finn, um, offers clues to kids. In training up a child in the way he should go, let me tell you the, the way that I've trained up Finn. I've trained up Finn in the way that he should go. Finn loves to fetch. Finn loves to be in the water. Finn loves to eat and drink and smother people. That's really what his life is about. Now, there are a few quality traits that I won't get into that he does this poorly, but that's basically his life. Now, this means that Finn doesn't get free reign, but I do steer him toward this. I've never tried to teach Finn to be one of those, you know, like prancing dogs in the dog show, and I wear, you know, the person wears a long skirt and runs. That's the funniest thing ever. If you haven't seen it, YouTube it. It's great. I've never tried to to make Finn do that. That's not who Finn is, right? Now, through fear and intimidation, could I get Finn to do all kinds of things? Probably, yeah. With enough repetition, with food prompts, I, I could probably make him do a lot of things. But I have gone with Finn's bent. People at the beach, they go, how do you get your dog so well trained? Because every time you throw that ball, and I don't care if it gets lost in the ocean, I don't care if 27 balls, he'll bring that ball back and he'll, he'll drop it and then he'll wait for it to do it again. And I tell him, I say, I'm a master dog trainer. That's how. <laughs> and for $27.95, you can become like me. No, I just say, look, he does it. Honestly, I mean... We've worked with him, but do you think I have time to train a dog? Say no. Of course not. I have a lot of kids to train, right? I don't have time to train a dog. But as you go with, with what Finn is. Now, does Finn get free reign to eat and drink whenever he wants? Of course not. Does he try? Yes. Does Finn smother people and use inappropriate touch? Yes, all the time. So we need to work on that. It doesn't mean train up a child in the way they, they should go. It doesn't mean they just get to do whatever they want. But it means going with that. Bring this back to your kids for a moment. If you translate this to your kids and you think about the idea of, am I going along with who they are made to be or am I trying to form them in my own image? Am I trying to form them exactly opposite of me because I don't like how I am? Am I trying to form them into their older brother or sister? Have you caught yet that your siblings are different, right? People are just different and we're complex. What is in the heart of your child? Once you get to what's in the heart of your child, you'll get to behavior. Why are they acting the way they act? They're acting out of the, the, the overflow of their heart, right? That means that, you know, bursting out and crying over tennis shoes usually isn't about the tennis shoes. There's something else going on. And part of the detective work and hard work, frankly, and ongoing work of parents is getting at the heart and what's happening there. How can I stay connected to and pursue a child's heart? That's a way different question than how can I train them up to rigorously follow these 27, you know, command prompts of, of morals, right? It's way more robust and way more um, grace-inducing and way more you as a parent saying, God, help me in this. I can't possibly do this on my own. Train brings all kinds of imagery, coaching and time and repetition and patience, etc. Again, let me pick on my youngest, my four-year-old. He came up to me um, 
one morning not that long ago, and we're, we're laying in my bed on kind of a lazy morning, and he came up and he said, hey, Dad. I said, yeah. And he goes, remember that time um, when we went to the beach? And I go, like, we go to the beach a lot. I'm like, uh, which time? And he starts rattling off who was there. Remember, like, so-and-so was there and so-and-so was there. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. He goes, yeah, and, and then we went to get ice cream. And, and remember, I didn't get any because I had made bad choices. And I go, yeah, buddy, I, I remember that. Boy, do I remember that. That was really, really hard as a parent. Um, my wife loves ice cream, if you don't know my wife. And for us to, to have done that, it was, it was hard as parents to, to withhold that. And then he said this, pause. And then he said, yeah, but that's okay because I get to try again. And I just sat there and I said, you know, Eli, I said, aren't you so glad for do-overs? And he goes, yeah, I am. And what's interesting is that happened a couple weeks prior. He was talking to me weeks later. So the repetition, the training, the ongoing discipline, the, gosh, is this the right thing to do? Is this, is this punitive or is this training the child's heart? It was, it was sinking in. That, that one little snapshot shows just this train up is never ending. When you forget everything I've just said, let me, let me put it to you this way. Think about your pastors. Think about what your pastors do that you really, really like. You ought to take those things and say, am I doing those in my home? I don't care how old you are as a parent. Your kids never leave your mind. That's what my parents have told me. That's what the grandparents that I mentor, and, or not mentor, walk under and walk with tell me. That there's, there's a lifetime of coaching to go on. So whatever your pastors do that's great, that's biblical, mimic that. What do your pastors not do that really bugs you? What do you go, gosh, our church is so weak at this. Our pastor never does this. I never this. Take those things, and if they're in line with Scripture, go and do them. See how that feels and correct that in your home. Pastor your kids. Your home ought to be like a mini church that you're doing in a way that pleases God. Let me close with this. I want to give you three handles that I hope will be, will be helpful for you to kind of grab onto some truth. One is this. You can't do this alone. So build powerful partnerships. You say, well, what does that mean? Glad you asked. We're going to talk about it next week. Next week, what I want to do is take some time and look at some of the partnerships that God has provided for you in your, in your parenting. Shepherds lead their sheep to green pastures, and sometimes this means going beyond your front lawn, Right? Uh, we did a bunch of yard work in the front lawn. I found two tiny tufts of green. That's it. That's all that's left, right? Because no one's watering anymore. But if you have green pasture in your front yard, and as your kids get older, what you do with that is you find outside help. You build powerful partnerships. Once they exceed in math beyond what you know, what do you do? If they need extra help, you hire a tutor, right? So we begin to build partnerships, and, and we'll, we'll look at more of that um, next week, how to expand our parent power uh, through, through leveraging partnerships. Here's number two. This is really simple. Live and pray the Psalms and the, and the Proverbs. Let me give you just a, a couple of examples. Psalm 66.5 says this, Come and see what our God has done, what awesome miracles he performs for people. If you were to just read this one verse and discuss it this afternoon at the afternoon meal, it would force a couple of things out. We need to know the deeds of God. Are your eyes, parents, trained to know the deeds of God, to call them out as good, to celebrate them? Are you inviting your kids in seeing that? Here's, here's a reversal, kids. What about you bringing to the family meal, hey, I saw something that sure seemed like 
a work of the Holy Spirit today in my high school campus. Let me share it with you. And that now invigorates your parents' faith to say, wow, God's at work on our local high school campus. That's thrilling to me. Come and see what our God has done. Here's another one, Psalm 92, 1-4. Listen to it. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I will sing for joy. Parents, do this with your kids. Did you hear that? In the morning, what are you supposed to do? Declare the steadfast love of God. What about it at night? Talk about his faithfulness. Should you actually sing, even if you don't have a voice? Yes! The only ones who won't care are your young children. Sing to them, right? Sing with your kids these things. Announce God's unchanging love every single day. Talk about his faithfulness at bedtime. Singing isn't just for an hour or so at church on Sundays. I said earlier that much is at stake, and and we must make and keep family a priority. And if we were to do the same thing in our school or in our job, it would it would maybe fall apart for some people. As I was thinking that thought, as I wrote that, I read the proverb of the day. There's 31 proverbs. There's usually 31 days in the month. I happened to be reading Proverbs 13 as I started my morning, and I came in, and this passage, this sermon, was in front of me, and I read this. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Over and over and over again, you will find the wisdom of Proverbs overlaid onto your day. Over and over again, if you're paying half attention, you'll say, no way. God, you have a verse thousands of years before my day that backed up, that, that illustrates the very thought that I was having, which is, Put time and energy, unwavering time and energy, into your family. And then I read this, that if you're a sluggard and you expect things, you'll get nothing. But if you're diligent, you'll be richly rewarded. Over and over again, the Proverbs will do that. Here's number three. Keep your life in order. I say keep your life in order because it's not about putting your life in order. You put your life in order, what happens? It gets rearranged. You get your priorities straight, what happens? They slip up. You have to keep your priorities straight. You have to keep your life in order. The best thing, husband and wife, that you could possibly do for your child is to order your life under God. This one thing will solve a world of questions and problems that you have going on in your household. Because once you order your life under God, one of the things God will tell you to do is to love and serve your spouse. And your kids will benefit from this. I will also tell you to love and serve your kids and not worship your kids. I tell parents this sometimes, that kids make terrible pets because they talk back to you, right? So some people parent almost like their kids are pets. And sometimes people parent as if kids are idols, like little mini gods. And they're terrible, terrible gods. You know why? They grow up and they move away. And now your whole world that you've worshipped and kind of sacrificed and been at the altar uh, worshipping is gone from your life. And so parents find themselves completely and utterly in a, you know, kind of rudderless and an open ocean when their kids move away. Why? Because they've idolized their kids. Kids make terrible gods. Kids make terrible pets. Love and serve them, but don't worship them. That's, that's ordering your life under God. 
I put this quote from John MacArthur in your notes. Teaching spiritual truth to children is a joy. No one is more receptive, more hungry to learn, or more trusting than a child. Chances are, you'll never find more eager disciples than your own children. Don't squander the opportunity. My dad, about a week before he passed away, was still doing this. He called all of us into uh, into uh, kind of our family room area at my parents' house at Christmas time, and we dismissed the kids. And he went around to each of us boys and our spouses. And there was kind of this final word of blessing, final word of encouragement, final word of disciple-making going on. And it was profound because we all had a sense this was like the last time this was ever going to happen. That was a great picture for me because it showed me, Dave, this, this never ends. You don't parent until they're 18. You parent until you're dead or they're dead. There's some similarities between God's family and our families. Uh, there's a new movie coming out. I happen to just catch the trailer. It's called No Escape, and it's with Owen Wilson. And there's kind of this voiceover that's really common. We love this storyline. It said this, he would do anything to save his family. That was kind of the, the voiceover amidst all the action going on. And I thought about, you know, we track with this, and I think in the church we do the same thing. We make loud proclamations. I'll do anything for the Lord. And we say the same thing. I would do anything for my family. What if doing anything for your family, doing anything for your church, meant being faithful each day in the small thing? Wouldn't being faithful in those small things day after day after day lead to something pretty heroic and something pretty giant? Yeah. Most of us struggle with that, though. We think we would do the giant things for God, but we won't walk in the simple paths that he's laid out for us. We would do anything for our family, but we won't do the hard work of just just walking steadily and taking the next step. People, we follow God not a week at a time or a month at a time. We follow him a day at a time, an hour at a time, a minute at a time, and a step at a time, right? So my, my challenge to you is just say, what's, what's the next step this morning for you? What is God nudging you to begin doing or stop doing? That's, that's the real question for us. 